Welcome back to Across the Movie Isle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I'm your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm spiffy. I am so happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and controversies, Taylor Swift is headed to the big screen and the studios are furious. Why is that? Well, it's pretty simple. Uh, Tay-Tay cut out the middlemen and they are the middlemen in this situation. Uh, so when news broke that Swift was bringing her Eras tour to the big screen, it literally crashed the AMC ticketing website as fans rushed out to get tickets. Uh, I don't know how many of them realized that Swift's concert would be on the big screen for at least four weeks. Uh, but they all wanted in regardless. They wanted in on that first weekend. Um, the film itself was financed by Swift uh, and her team. She is the biggest marketer possible for this event. She doesn't need to run TV ads everywhere, uh, which means that really there isn't much for the studios to do in this case, except take a cut, take the distribution cut. Enter AMC. The theater chain basically went to Swift and made her a pretty straightforward deal. We'll handle distribution. Uh, and split the revenue 57% to you, 43% to us. Uh, and we'll also handle distribution with every other theater chain for a nominal fee. You'll get four weeks guaranteed, and the Swifts will have the right to sell to a streamer 13 weeks after the run begins. Um, the studios were very upset because they were in talks with the Swifts as well and feel like this is not only money out of their pockets in terms of distribution fees, it's also messing up the release calendar, right? The new Exorcist movie uh, from Universal has already moved to an earlier... Uh, calendar date. There was some worry that Swift might snatch up the IMAX screens promised to Killers of the Flower Moon the weekend after her film debuts. We'll see. I don't know. Uh, AMC's response to the studios was basically uh, F you guys. Um, and who can blame them really? You know, uh, thanks to the strike, studios are unilaterally pushing release dates back. Uh, Sony pushed a whole bunch of stuff back. Um, the era's movie, whatever, whatever this ends up being called, uh, we'll fill the revenue hole left by Dune Part 2 and probably then some. Um, Swift's concert is putting up pre-sale numbers that rival Avengers Infinity War and Endgame. Uh, this could wind up being an absolutely massive windfall for theaters at a moment of great uncertainty. Uncertainty caused at least in part again by the labor strife between the unions and SAG and the WGA. Um, Alyssa, there aren't too many artists who can command this sort of attention. I, Beyonce could probably maybe get away with this sort of thing. I don't know. So I don't want to suggest that this is a regular thing that will become part of the ecosystem, but I do wonder if theater companies can look at this and try to grab a bigger, increasing role as actual distributors, um, both either for musical artists or for movies. I don't know. Uh, should this whole situation give the studios pause? Or is Taylor Swift simply sui generis? And this is not a replicable thing. Um, before I answer that question, uh, so we're going to do the Eras tour as one of our movies. I don't, right? I don't think, I'm, I don't know what we would talk about for three hours. Okay. I don't know. You guys have made me watch a lot of action and horror movies. I think maybe this is one where I get to pull a co-host rank and be like, I'm making you guys friendship bracelets and we're going to watch the Eras tour at a movie theater. Yeah, maybe well, we'll Sonny and I can watch The Exorcist, and then you can tell us about Taylor Swift, and we can see if there's any overlap. Uh, so I can handle what you're saying is I can handle the girl stuff, yes. and you can you can, you can watch, watch the girl the ghosts and murder. We all went to go see Barbie, so everyone on the planet who went to the movies went to see Barbie. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying, if you want to cover what, the biggest movies of the year, you, we probably need to cover the Eras tour. Oh, I, I will actually, no, I will wait, actually answer your question. Wait, no, but this, but I want to, I want to actually discuss this for a second because I'm, I'm curious what we would actually talk about. Like, here's the concert with the songs. She's singing the songs. 
here's the performance. I mean, I think the presentation. Okay. I think Taylor Swift is a phenomenon. I think that you know one of the things that has been very culturally interesting about this summer is you know women and girls flexing their cultural power, uh, their economic and cultural power in a big way. You know, she is. I mean, she is a brilliant marketer. She has you know has sort of seized control of production here in a way that is the end result of a lot of trends in media over the last 15 years in particular. Um, but also, like, I mean, Emily St. James has made a serious case that Taylor Swift is going to be the millennial Bruce Springsteen, and I think that's entirely possible. Um, and so, you know, we don't talk about music a lot on the podcast, but it could be a really interesting opportunity to talk about sort of the spectacle of, the self-curated spectacle of celebrity, the, you know, the rise of a few sort of culture dominating artists at a time when you know cinema and television have atomized a lot i think it would be interesting i think it would you we know can talk about, I think there's I think, a lot to talk about with her her forays into dad rock here's you know all the collaborations yeah. with aaron Dessner from the national here's the thing fan. we're talking about that right now we're talking we don't we don't actually need to watch the movie to talk about it i don't know you could take your daughter i'm just saying yep, my wife probably is taking my daughter for it. to go see that movie <laughs> <laughs> then maybe your wife can fill in as the third chair on that episode, Sonny. You can take a week off. Um, let me actually answer that question, though, because part of what I think is very interesting about this as a phenomenon is that it is obviously where um, media has been trending for a while. Um, if you look at, for example, the profiles that are run of really big celebrities in magazines like Vogue these days, they are increasingly sort of self-curated. Um, Beyonce did a Vogue cover a couple of years ago where she wrote the essay herself. She did not have an interlocutor. She picked the photographer, um, Taylor Mitchell, who is sort of an up-and-coming fashion photographer, very young. I think he was 24 at the time, who she admired and, you know, basically went over the heads of the Vogue editors and was like, I'm hiring him for the Vogue cover shoot. Um you know, media is, celebrity media is increasingly sort of self-curated, self-documented, self-repackaged. And so, you know, the if I were the, the company that I would be least happy about this development is actually Fathom Events, which does a lot of sort of taped, um, they do classical, they do opera, but they also do rock uh, and various, they sort of repackage other live events for cinema. And a lot of you which know, runs through AMCs. Yes, exactly. Which may be in part of why AMC is a good partner for this. But, you know, it's not just that you're sidestepping the traditional studios. You're sidestepping an existing studio that kind of specializes in this stuff. Um, and so I think the sort of self-controlled, self-produced, um, you know, artist documentary repackaged live show it totally makes sense that someone like Swift, who already has the sort of full infrastructure of, you know, video and editing, she is, you know, she has started directing a bunch of her own music videos. You know, there is just this sort of vertical integration in the celebrity industry. And this is clearly, I think, going to be the most profitable expression of that impulse. Um, but it it has been where pop music in particular has been trending for a long time. And so I, I'm not surprised about it. She's also just a genius self-marketer. And so there were some, there were some sort of reports circulating that she had been lowballed by the various studios that she talked to and was kind of doing this on her own as, 
kind of revenge, independence, etc., which is a very sort of Swiftian narrative of this kind of thing to take place. Um, and so it is entirely in keeping with her image as an artist as she's cultivating it right now, but it is obviously the sort of savvy end result of efforts by stars to control just all of the production around their work. And she's, you know, she has done... You know, she has a previous documentary, I think, that came out with Netflix, Miss Americana, um, that was in part about one of her previous tours, um, but also about you know her decision to speak out and become more political and her sort of evolution away from Nashville. So she also has sort of this particular experience of, you know, doing documentary, quasi-documentary work um, and kind of using that as part of her larger framing. Yeah, I mean, like the whole the whole idea of Concert films not not exactly new here. Um, I, just a couple weeks ago, Metallica did uh, a couple nights of like actual live concerts from yeah. from Dallas. Uh, uh, the concert that was here, um, and that you know that that's all interesting. I I do think you know obviously it was on a much smaller scale in terms of the audience because uh, Metallica is despite the fact that Metallica can sell out the same stadium as uh, Taylor Swift, they do not have the uh, you know massive demand for for those concerts um but the when metallica released through the never which was a kind of concert film slash weirdo apocalyptic thriller it did not do avengers endgame level no numbers. no no and that like, was probably look, most listeners have never seen the film and maybe most have never even heard of it i will say it's interesting uh, it was it was fun to watch that one in an imax uh theater yeah. the uh, metallica in an imax auditorium very loud um but the but again, the my my question here, I guess, Peter, is I, I just don't know how replicable this is, because as Alyssa says, look, uh, Taylor Swift has a whole infrastructure around her. Again, like there are there are other artists. There are a handful of other artists that I think could probably do this. Beyonce again. Um, but I just don't I don't see this necessarily being. I guess what I'm saying is I if I'm Fathom Events, I'm not too worried about this because like the Metropolitan Opera is not uh is not set up in the same way with the same sort of commercial um uh publicity network surrounding it you know so let me start by not answering your question just like Alyssa did and instead asking you both of you a question am i right do i understand correctly that like wh what what that the studios weren't really offering to bring anything specific to the table, except we have some experience with marketing and distribution of movies. I, Which I, is just this sort of general thing that it, it doesn't seem obvious that it's that there's any particular benefit to have gone with a studio here. Like what what would what would Taylor Swift have gotten besides a lot less money? Yeah. Yeah, nothing. I, I mean, like this is again, this is why I said they're just cutting out the middlemen and the studios yeah. are the middlemen. Yeah. The so, only scenario, I mean, if she had signed with like Greta Gerwig to do a tour movie that was sort of the equivalent of like Martin Scorsese doing the last waltz with the band sure. in 1978. Like if there was a director she wanted to work with and, you know, wanted to. But she already worked yeah. with the director here. This was yes, already yeah. a yeah. Taylor Swift product. Right. That's right, what that I mean. she right. managed. I don't know who if the director. The, if there had is, been something where she started, something like where signed... it was assigned to her or in, you know, done outside of her orbit. 
Yeah, if there had been like a secret pre-tour deal and then she announced that she was working with, you know, but again, you know, Greta Gerwig is probably the only director who is where there would be that kind of synthesis. I mean, interestingly, she used to hang out, um, Taylor Swift used to hang out with Lena Dunham a lot, but like, I do not think that friendship is uh, operative anymore. And uh, the Lena Dunham Taylor Swift concert film would be one of the weirder yeah. Sort of girl. Uh, I do want to see that next. though, and we'll watch that one for the show. So my, I mean, the my answer thing, to your question Peter, is this replicable, Peter? Um, I'm sorry to answer to, oh, to to answer your question further though. I mean, the other thing that studios do is they pay for things. They pay they pay the budgets for creating something like this, right? And Taylor Swift doesn't need that. She spent yeah. the ten million dollars or whatever it costs to film and edit and produce this thing. Um, and there, there's just like I there's there's nothing the studios like. She is like. She is like the Joker in the studios or the Batman. There's nothing that they can offer her. There's nothing they can they can give her to to make her come to their side. So to yeah, the, ex- the extent can that I just it, say it's yeah, worth sorry, noting, like this is a tour that's made more than a billion dollars. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, she's in a position where she's like giving all of her truckers hundred thousand dollar bonuses and like f- flying the entire crew of the show to like the four seasons, in Me- one of the four seasons in Mexico. Right. Like there's no I mean, like a studio giving her ten million dollars to do this would just not it's so not necessary for her um in terms of giving away like any percentage of the stakes and there are very few people who could do that i mean i haven't looked up the grosses on beyonce's tour and i mean she and jay-z could probably afford to pull something like this off um but that would probably yeah it's they could do it um but i don't know that they would or have or maybe there's something in the works so I don't think this is replicable at this scale and with this level of threat to the studio uh, in the sense of this is a huge amount of money that it, that studios are missing out on. I do think it is replicable in the sense that this sets a precedent that even considerably smaller artists with real fan bases can now go around the studio system and go directly to AMC or whoever else that isn't a studio and work out some deal that cuts out all the studios to do to do some sort of uh, production if they want to. And while it is true that Taylor Swift has massively more resources available to her to, say, produce a movie entirely on her own before she goes to AMC, other bands, other artists, musical artists, do have some amount of resources in producing a tour-style documentary or, or you know, uh, something like that is not just much cheaper and much more accessible to smaller artists. And actually to bring this back to a band like The National, which, you know, when it comes when they come to D.C., they play two nights at the Anthem, which is a three to four thousand seat venue. It's not a giant arena, but like, but they have fans. Right. And they they do they, like they will sell out, um, you know, uh, the, the Anthem two nights in a row pretty quickly. Uh, and a band like that probably isn't going to produce Taylor Swift level numbers, doesn't have access to her uh, to her resources or, or uh, finances, it, except in the sense that one of them is writing songs for Taylor Swift. But they have money and they have access to other artists, uh, visual artists, people who want to make movies who they might want to work with. Also, they might have some ideas of their own about how to make movies that if I so I actually saw their last tour here in, in Washington, D.C. at the Anthem. And it starts out with a sort of quasi-live video production of them backstage. There's a bunch of video elements that are attached to it. They're already producing at a lower, at a much lower level, to be clear. They're already producing a bunch of video product on their own. 
And a band that wanted to, to, to expand the reach of their video product beyond, oh, just here's what we're showing during our tour, now can see that they can go to AMC directly, that they can go to a non-studio and say, look, we think that there's opportunities to sell this and that there's enough money in this for you and for me. Uh, let's figure out something that's going to work. And maybe it, that means AMC pays for the documentary themselves. Maybe that means the band shows up and has something already put together and AMC just does distribution. Whatever it is, that's, this, is this is encroaching on the studio's turf in a big way, but also at the margins sets a precedent that I would be worried about if I were a studio. They're going to have to find some value add that they can say, look, you, you should go through us because your life, your business, your art, your whatever, we will provide some value add for you. And this is that's why I opened with this question. What is the value add that they're offering? Because it doesn't seem like they're adding any real clear value add, except we've done this a bunch before. But the fact is, media is now cheap in a way that it wasn't. Deals can be done directly. And there's no reason to have a middleman that doesn't provide any value add, except we're always the middleman. Media is cheap if you have an enormous fan base already. I mean, I like this is this is what Taylor Swift has. She, you know, I, yes, I, I it's a, of course it's a different situation because there's no artist, no musical yeah. artist that that rivals Taylor Swift, not even Beyonce, although that's the clearest and closest example. Yeah. I, so, the, of course, in that way, it is sui generis. On the other hand, this does suggest to other artists. Whether whether it's somebody as small, you know, or as relatively small as like a band like The National or Death Cab or Cutie or whoever it is that just has a, a big enough fan base that they can kind of sell out uh, a medium sized venue in any city kind of anytime, or it's somebody bigger, you know, like Metallica that sells out stadiums like this deal says, be creative. Think about how you could do something like this. And I wouldn't be entirely surprised if we see knock-on effects from this ripple effects over the next 10 years where artists try to cash in in the same way whether they will work or not i don't know but this is this says to other musical artists who have some built-in big enough fan base you should try this you should see what you can get away with or what you can manage and you don't need the studios to do it lightning round which would be the artist that you would want to see do something like this and what nine inch nails like? I don't even know, honestly. I like, I like, I almost went Sonny, to the- your answer is the Foo Fighters. Your answer is the Foo Fighters, who already made a funny horror movie or something last but year. But I've already, I've already, but, se- but here's, I, I, I just, I find this to be a weird, I find this whole thing to be very weird because the, the whole point of the concert for me is less the, um, is less the actual music and the performance than the communion with the other people right in the in the concert hall venue and i i don't know that you get that same sort of experience in the theatrical setting unless again it's like a, the swifties are gonna take over these amcs and like you remember how we joked about uh you know barbie being drowned out by the nuclear blasts in oppenheimer and the next auditorium over could you imagine sitting down for oppenheimer and having to hear 300 little girls screaming bad blood at the top of their lungs uh when that song played like i i can't i i'm i the only reason i would i would i would consider going to see this movie is just to experience the horror of being in a theater full of singing swifty fans and having nowhere to go to escape 
I don't know. Karma's God Sunday. Um, my answer to that question is that I want the an animated Decemberist concert movie where the animation is done by Carson Ellis. I would I, an wow. animated Decemberist movie uh, uh, that is based on the hazards of love about a about a, a shape shifting murder ghost family. That would be that's what I want. It would own. I th- th- fun trivia. The first uh, professional writing about culture that I got published as an adult was that I won a review writing contest um, for the December DC show on the Crane Wife tour. And so I have like the, a bunch of art from them that's like signed by the entire band at my desk. I know. All right. So what do we think? Is it a Nerd. controversy or a non-troversy that Taylor Swift is kneecapping the studios? Alyssa. Non-troversy. Swifty forever. Peter. It's a little bit of a controversy. This is a big business deal that changes the economics of film and concert industry to at least to some degree or has the potential to. Uh, I would say it's 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 a non-troversy in the sense that it makes perfect sense uh, for Swift. Uh, It's a mild controversy in that it like puts AMC at odds with the studios in a way that I know the theaters don't like to be. Because uh, they they do they do still have a fairly symbiotic relationship, um, but uh, I mean it 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 I don't know I it may it, it all makes perfect sense to me. This is what you get for pulling Dune two off the ca- the calendar, Warner Brothers. This is karmic payback. All right, uh, make sure to swing by Friday for our bonus episode. We're gonna be talking about old man action movies, best new genre to come along in a, in a million years. Uh, and now on to the main event. Speaking of old man action movies, The Equalizer 3 is the latest, maybe the last, entry in Denzel Washington's venerable old man action franchise. Uh, as a reminder, the setup of the series is pretty straightforward. Washington plays Robert McCall. He's a former government killer who faked his own death in order to get out of the game, only to find himself pressed back into the service on the mean streets of Boston after a bunch of Russian mobsters, uh, blah, 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 doesn't really matter. In between... Inspirational speeches about the importance of hard work and self-discipline, McCall kills bad people, righteously, in ways that are both entertaining and sometimes pretty amusing. Uh, The whole first movie builds up to one of the most satisfying high-concept set pieces I've ever seen. What if killer in Home Depot killing bad people? It's great. Uh, The first sequel was kind of similar, building up to a similarly entertaining finale. This movie is a little bit different. As it opens, McCall seems a bit off. Sure, he's still wiping out small armies of villains, but he's muttering to himself. He's slouched. He's got his head in his hands. Washington plays uh, the role a little bit like he played Macbeth in 2021's The Tragedy of Macbeth. Uh, At one point early on, uh, director Antoine Fuqua shoots him uh, wreathed in this smoky light, kind of backlit, slouched in a chair, uh, almost a Mad King-like persona. Um, Wounded in the course of this fight, McCall convalesces in a small Sicilian seaside village. The people are kind. They teach him how to live again. Uh, but they are also scared. They're scared of the Camorra, the Sicilian mob. And when, when they start trying to muscle the townsfolk out of their homes and, you know, they want to move drugs and blah, blah, you know, you know, the violence is coming and it's going to be righteous. I don't think this movie is quite as good as the first in terms of pure storytelling, but I do think it's more interesting than either of its predecessors. It rather straightforwardly asks if McCall is a good man or not because of his ability to inflict righteous violence or despite that fact. Um, the, the, the whole picture is suffused with religious imagery, like whereas McCall in the first uh, two books was constantly seen with a book in his hand, right? He, there were classics like Old Man and the Sea, 
newer titles like Between the World and Me, it kind of represented where he was in his own personal journey. Um, here we only see one book, and it's the book. It's the Bible. Uh, at another point, McCall looks at a crucifix while the Camorra is roughing up a shop owner, and he stares at it, willing himself to just turn the other cheek. You know, he's got to stop. He's got to put the violence behind him. He's a man of peace now. Sometimes things happen. You just got to look the other way. Uh, for this patience, he is rewarded by the mob burning down the man's shop. Turning the other cheek has its limits. Uh, as I as I have kind of joked online, this movie might as well be called Just War Theory, the motion picture. Um, but the violence inflicted by McCall in this one is less glorious and more horrifying. I mean, like, out of a horror movie. Uh, whereas the first two films emphasize McCall's cleverness, this picture emphasizes how terrifying it would be to come up against him. Uh, the closing set piece resembles uh, an action movie like John Wick or Taken less than it does a horror movie like Halloween. McCall is Michael Myers. He's implacable. He's unstoppable. He's jumping out of dark spaces to open up arteries and impale un un unexpecting victims. It's pretty scary stuff. Um, again, not as good as the first Equalizer, but more interesting. Fuqua is digging deep into a constant thematic preoccupation of his, the morality of violence in defense of the defenseless. I find this very interesting. I love this sort of movie. I, I could watch the million of these, and I have. Uh, Peter, what did you make of The Equalizer 3? Uh, this movie is really surprisingly like a hyper-violent, hyper-masculine version of Eat, Pray, Love in a way that I just wasn't expecting. I mean, it's about a guy who is, you know, entering a difficult period in his life. He's not sure what it all means. And so he goes to Italy and he finds inner peace and he meets a beautiful woman who shows him around the town and he becomes just enamored with the culture. And then he murders a huge number of people incredibly violently. It's eat, pray, love and kill. Eat, pray, love, kill. That's what this movie should have been called rather than the Equalizer th three. Um, I'm not sure this is a good movie, but it's much better than it has any right to be. And there are two main reasons for that. One is that Antoine Fuqua, even when he is making movies that I don't particularly like or think fully work, Antoine Fuqua is just an excellent, careful movie director who, who, never, who never sort of shows up and just doesn't care. Like, you see that he, you see a kind of precision and a thoughtfulness to every single frame, every single shot, and every single cut in all of his movies. And I just always appreciate that Fuqua is, like, takes this business of making, in some ways, sometimes disposable action movies. Because you can totally treat all of the Equalizer films as essentially just sort of disposable R-rated action movies that don't have any deeper meaning, even if you want to like, take them you know, a, a little more seriously. They can also just be read on a very surface level of like, man, it's pretty cool to watch Denzel Washington kill some guys. But he doesn't just make that movie. And we're going to talk about old man action movies, uh, you know, later this later this week. But this is this is a superior version of that in so many ways. There's just so many beautiful shots. There's so much patience um, The the pacing is often impeccable, especially in the action sequences. But even more the, than that, in the build up to the action sequences, that opening sequence in the um, in the Italian villa where the camera just follows this drug lord, uh, violent, whatever, sort of overseer, is this old guy who's like controls a bunch of drugs and violence, uh, down the steps and down the steps. And it just sort of pans around. And you see the effects of Washington's character having gone through this house and just murdered methodically all of these guys. That could have been played much more for sort of jolt shock. It could have been... Um, 
it, it could have easily been quick, sort of uh, messy, uh, just kind of not very, like, kind of nasty and um, aggressive and uninteresting. And instead, it's this slow and careful buildup of dread and detail in which you see what it's like to, to be on the other end of a guy like McCall. And so this movie is, is good for one reason, like I said, is Antoine Fuqua. And then the other reason is because of Denzel Washington. And I've been thinking a lot about Denzel Washington recently and how he is, he is like, I, I think he's the best actor of our generation. I mean, not, or sort of the best, the, so he has, what I think he is, is uh, he is not only the, he is, he is something that is unique, which is he has, he is the best, uh, the highest combination of unique screen gravitas, which is something a little bit independent of being a good actor, like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Tom Cruise both can be decent performers, but what they really have is incredible screen gravitas. Denzel Washington has it just as much as any big movie star, but he also has a kind of actorly skill and intelligence that is mostly relegated to actors who are a little bit more character actors who are a little bit more sort of, oh, these aren't the stars, they're just the actors you know are really good. He is as good a, a performer as Philip Seymour Hoffman, who I think is the other kind of contender for, maybe if we're going to pick the two best like male performers of the past 30 years, uh, male screen actors, um, like the, it's, it's the two of them. But Denzel Washington just has, has that natural screen energy that even Philip Seymour Hoffman couldn't quite match. And it's really rare to find somebody who is this big a movie star and just this big a, just this big a, a star that has that kind of sheer charisma, and also has this utterly, just like will just take you someplace with his actorly intelligence, his ability to sort of move through layers and layers of psychology with a single look or a line reading, and you see that all over this movie, which honestly doesn't have a great script. And which gives McCall, I don't know, some lines that are a little bit clunkers here and there as kind of expositories. Some of the plot beats don't really make all that much sense. And I didn't care at all because I was just so happy to watch Denzel Washington do anything on screen. And he makes McCall a completely real, deep and believable character, despite being sort of a psych, like a, like, I mean, kind of psychotic, murdering, crazy guy, like, he doesn't work on paper. He only works in the embodiment that Denzel Washington gives him, but he totally fully works because Denzel Washington is that good and is so watchable and and so complex an actor. And so, I don't know, like, I, I think the script has real problems. I think the story is just way too uh, dependent on conveniences and contrivances. But it's a very watchable movie that is really nicely directed with a great central performance. It does feel a little bit like this movie had about 30 more minutes of uh, plot development surrounding the drugs and the war on terror that got like cut out at some point in the editing. And, room. and like, it is get, about 20 minutes shorter than just, the other two films. So I cut, don't just, even think that that's impossible. Just yeah. cut and cut and c get rid of all this stuff. We just want Denzel killing people in the street. Uh, Alyssa, one thing I think what Peter is describing is, uh, with regard to Denzel Washington is his he he is as loose as anybody has ever been on camera before that's what i that's what i think when i watch him moving i just think like that's a guy that is a guy who dominates the screen 
but also doesn't look like he's trying to dominate the screen. Yeah, um, I it, mean, it's amazing. Well, I think what when people talk about method acting, what they often mean, I think, and for people who don't know a lot about sort of Lee Strasberg and the method, is that you know someone is sort of fully immersed in their character and living in their character, but that's not actually a very useful description because. You know, what does it mean to entirely be in a character, right? And what Washington does very well, in and this movie is a good sort of case study for something like this, is he has thought every step of the way about what it's like to be in his character's body, right? And so there are just, there are a lot of interesting sort of small gestural choices. I talk a lot about actors' faces um, on this podcast and in general, um, but he, you know, he, there were just all of these little moments like in the first sequence when he um you know raids this vineyard and kills all these people and gets this set of keys and just starts flipping the key ring in this slightly odd way and you know slightly odd pacing but yet there's a rhythm to it right i mean he has thought about how a man like mccall would flip a key ring well, he's, um, he's flipping it like it's a butterfly knife yeah, that's what he's doing there. I mean, like I, I was like, oh, that that's an interesting little choice. Yeah. Um. So you know, you he he does a very good job of you know you see him getting physically stronger after having being having been injured, right? And so he you know has thought through how to pace that progression over the course of the movie. Um. You know, he is able to be a little bit of a physical goofball, like in the scene when he's sitting at the table at dinner with Enzo, the doctor who took him in and is taking care of him. He's like, I'm strong, and does these, you know, bicep curls with the cane that Enzo let him. Um, that It's just a little silly, right? He, you know, Washington has one of the great movie smiles of the last half century and deploys it very carefully, right? I mean, you can always tell the difference you know, between when he is smiling sort of tightly to be accommodating and when his character is like genuinely delighted, right? And so, you know, this, you know, it's not like Robert McCall is like that interesting or psychologically deep a character, but Washington clearly is all the way inside his skin. And it is just pleasurable to watch him do his thing in a movie like this, even if a movie like this is super not up my alley in particular and i have to confess i've not seen the previous two movies in this series um i you know i i get the appeal of denzel washington murdering a lot of people this movie skewed a little like ugly violence for my taste like it's a hard a lot of yeah it's a hard r a lot of a lot of stabbing uh longtime fans of this podcast know that i just i don't like stabbing violence but um you know, I, I enjoy and the use of the setting here is really, really nice. Um I neither of you are Catholic, right? Um there's that this idea correct. and there are a couple of sort of I'm not Catholic either, but I weirdly studied a lot of the history of Catholicism. And so there are a couple of important texts in Catholicism that are about sort of climbing ladders. As you know, there's the ladder of divine ascent. Saint Bernard de Clairvaux has another sort of idea of the divine ladder. Um, you know, some of these are employed as kind of spiritual frameworks by people who are in monastic life. Some of them are sort of used to structure prayer and spiritual improvement by like Catholics. But the fact that the movie takes place not just in this little town in Sicily, but this town in Sicily that is built incredibly vertically 
means that the movie is sort of built around the idea both of, you know, it, pro it provides this physical challenge for McCall because he's recovering from this gunshot wound. The church is notably at the top of the steps in this incredibly vertical town. Um, but it's also a movie about spiritual ascent and descent, right? It's, you know, how do you become part of com a community? What if the highest service you can offer your community is violence? Like, how do you put all of this together? And so, again, I, I agree that it's not a great script, um, but it is one that is sort of, it is a movie that is somewhat sly about using its physical location to make an intellectual point. Um, in a way that I that I appreciated. I also just like that it's a movie about how you just you shouldn't burn down a man's fish store. Just you know, it's also also true. Very the true. inciting incident is sort of you know it's not framed with the wit or impact of it's like you struck my son, he stole John Wick's car, sir, and he killed his dog, right? But it's like you burned down the man's fish store, and now he's staying in this town because he's going to avenge the fish store owner. Well, he has to be able to buy the fish at some point because remember yeah, he'd gotten the fish for free, and now he feels right. in debt. No, I I find I find this movie's treatment of religion to be incredibly interesting and subtle uh, in 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 ways that I I I find it difficult to articulate because I am not a religious person myself. Um, like the uh, Peter, I, I, Alyssa hasn't watched the, the previous entries, but you have. Um, you, did you notice he when he, at one point, he takes off his watch, right, which has been kind of a constant totem through the rest of the series. He's timing how long his kills take. He takes off his watch, which is like taking off his armor or laying down his sword or whatever, and he puts it, where does he put it? He puts it in the drawer next to his Bible, right, the Bible that's in this room. So, like, the Bible and the, the, the totem of his violence are sitting there next to each other, and when he is ready to go and lay waste to the Kimura, he takes the watch out and he puts it on, and the question is, has, like, has the, has the watch been sanctified by the Bible? Has it been, is this now a, a holy weapon? I just find it very, I find it all, I find it, I find it interesting and um, amusing and clever without being hectoring or obvious in in ways that uh, some filmmakers would have a tendency to make a movie like this. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of that imagery is there because this is a movie about peace and redemption. And I, to the extent, to some extent, I, I think that that, that 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 stuff works. To some extent, I think it's a little bit of a stretch. It is trying to uh, add a layer of import on the material that it doesn't fully deserve. And yet, the craft work from Fuqua, the acting from Washington, all so good that I, I kind of didn't care that much. I, I don't think that this movie has a really clear thesis about the role of re religion here. I think it has some thoughts about how, well, you know, this is a spiritual quest for him. And it is a quest for goodness and for meaning and for uh, a, a sense of whether or not his life has been well lived. And those are, that is in some sense a, a religious quest. And it is about what, what, is, what is the value of life and what does it mean to give your life to and for others, right? There's a kind of um, a sacrifice, a sacrificial aspect to what he does because it is clearly at this point torturing him to some degree. It is not easy, even if it looks easy when he's doing the, you know, the, the grandpa murdering here, uh, the, the murder by grandpa, not gran murdering of grandpas. Um, right. And and you can attach religious symbolism to all of that. And in some ways, it gives the movie more depth. 
In other ways, I think it gives the movie a kind of illusion of depth. But like I said, I'm, I'm willing to accept even the illusion of depth here because it's more interesting than even a lot of other pretty good entries in this, uh, in, in this genre um, because it is made with more care and thought. And care, thought, and, and just genuine craft, right? Like Antoine Fuqua and Denzel Washington care about movies. And that is one thing that you see about that you see in all three of these films. Also, going back to, to Training Day, they're not just showing up for a paycheck. They're showing up to make a thing that they that, that they want to believe that like they, they want to make a thing that is good, and they care a lot about it being good. They also want it to be entertaining and accessible. They're making popular art, and they're doing it the right way. And again, I've not always loved Fuqua's movies. I mean, we we talked about the one he did with Will Smith. Um, for Apple TV uh, not too long ago, a year or yeah. so ago. And I don't think any of us liked it all that much. Um, but there's a bunch of interesting craft work in that movie. It's, there's, a bunch of, there's a bunch of bits that are really quite well made. And so, you know, he's just, he's one of these filmmakers who even when I don't like his movies, I'm always happy to have watched them um, and glad that he is making movies. Can I add one other note on just a piece of detail in this movie that I liked a lot? Um, I I so appreciated the way that Fuqua wove in um, the Italian islands, North like African immigrant population, um, because that you know there are a lot of African immigrants living in Italy now. There's a big North African immigrant population in Sicily. Uh, the island of Lampedusa has become a sort of landing point for a lot of refugees, and so. For Fuqua to sort of include that population in the community um, uh, where Washington, where, sorry, McCall ends up, to have them be sort of fully integrated members of the community um, and really, you know, sort of Italianized in some way is this really charming nod to authenticity, but also gesture of inclusion at a time when, you know, those immigrants have not always been treated well, have been ostracized um and so it is both something that is real and utopian in a way that i think is very much in keeping with the humanistic spirit of the setting uh yeah uh, just one more one other parting thought uh before we go i do think going back to peter's points about uh you know the 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 hinting at intellectual depth i mean the, the, in the first movie there were similar uh, kind of markers right like old name checking old man in the sea and don quixote and then uh, in the second one you've got uh him reading richard wright's native son and ta-nehisi coates's between the world and me like these are not books that you put on screen unless you are trying to make a very explicit point about what the character is doing which is, again is why i think it's very interesting that the 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 two kind of character markers from the first movies, the books and the watch are uh, kind of combined into the Bible and the watch. Here. I, I, I don't know. I find it all very interesting. I, I think it's, I think it's nice and subtle and whatever. All right. Uh, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on the equalizer three, Alyssa. Thumbs up. Peter. Like I said, I'm not sure it's actually a good movie, but it's definitely worth watching if you like this sort of thing. So thumbs up. Thumbs up. That sounds like two, three ringing endorsements. Uh, all right, so that is it for this week's show. 
Uh, make sure to head over to Bulwark Plus on Friday for our bonus episode. Make sure to tell your friends. Strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed, even if we don't go to the Taylor Swift concert. Movie. See you guys next week. <laughs>